0: Hello, and welcome back to What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent at Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. And today we present our first guest interview, also listener questions. We're taping this week just after 10 a.m., Thursday, August 31st. As with all news in Washington, things can change fast, and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So let's get to it. Today, we're joined by Joanne Kennan of Politico. Hey, Julie. And Margot Sanger Katz of The New York Times. Hi, guys. And in a few minutes, we'll hear my interview taped earlier this week with Elizabeth Rosenthal, editor in chief of Kaiser Health News, author of the book American Sickness How Healthcare Became Big Business and How You Can Take It Back. And yes, my boss. But first, our panel. I think we have to begin with the impact of hurricane epic rainmaker Harvey and what's happening on the Texas and Louisiana Gulf Coasts. First, of course, our deepest sympathies to everyone who's been in the path of the storm and our hopes for a quick recovery. But clearly, this storm's going to have at least two separate impacts on health policy, First, what it means to have the medical infrastructure in the nation's fourth largest city so powerfully disrupted. And second, what dealing with the aftermath in Congress might mean to what's already an overcrowded legislative agenda for September. So who wants to address either one?
1: Well, I think there's several layers of, of the destruction of the biomedical or the damage of the biomedical complex in Houston. There's the it, It's a big biomed center. So in terms of sort of the cities or the regions industry, it's a driver. And I don't think we yet have a clear sense of how much damage there is to research labs and the sort of industry side. In terms of getting care, you know, there's just going to be so much disruption. It's hard to, I mean, you cannot possibly have planned for five feet of water over however many hundreds of square miles this area is. This is, you know, geographically a huge wet area. So, short term, you know, hospitals have had flooding. They haven't, I mean, I'm sure if you're on the ground there, it looks chaotic. I mean, I'm sort of thinking from what we're seeing here, there has been some flooding, there has been evacuations, but there hasn't been the kind of, you know, some of the real horror stories that we saw in both Katrina and in Sandy. I mean, I think we all remember in Sandy, you know, when the NYU hospital was evacuating NICU babies, and you know, hand ventilating them, and it was just horrible. I mean, we haven't heard about that yet. Well, at least Houston is used to Flooding. (laughs) They're used to flooding, and I think they probably have learned some lessons. It doesn't mean it was perfect, and it doesn't mean things didn't go wrong, but, you know, I, I haven't heard anything that made me, like, think, you know, how on earth could that have happened? In fact, they seem to have done some smart things about these, you know, submarine doors or whatever yes, they Yes, the, the Texas Medical Center, which, of course, yeah. is this enormous complex. they can uh, complex. shut out flooding. Right, but it's also a
0: series of hospitals. It's not one hospital. It's like eight or ten. And all, they have this tunnel where you can actually go from hospital to hospital without having to go outside, which is nice even when it's not raining. It's really hot in Houston. Um, so they, uh, But I think in a previous storm, it actually, the tunnel flooded, and therefore it flooded all of the hospitals. So they went in and they installed these basically, you know, uh, the, the type of doors you would have in a submarine. So that they can close the doors when it's going to flood, and at least if one hospital floods, and one hospital did flood, uh, it's not going to the water's not going to go to all the other ones through the town, right? And it
1: only flooded, I believe, Ben Tauba but was that it flooded the first floor? I think only. So, but if you're a patient, you know, there's going to be months of chaos. Your doctor may have to be home dealing with their, you know, they doctors and nurses and X-ray technicians and every, you know. We don't know how many tens of thousands of people will not be able to go back into their homes. Their homes are destroyed. Their homes will need a lot of, you know, repair work. There's going to be uh, just, you know... Where are you living? Can you get to your old doctor if you're now in a shelter somewhere, you know, 20 miles away, temporary housing? We, we just don't, you know, I think there's going to be months or maybe years of, of upheaval and chaos. But and
2: I, even if you just think about, you know, someone who is receiving ongoing medical care, maybe dialysis or something like chemotherapy, you know, if they either had to evacuate or they don't have the ability physically to get to the hospital because roads are flooded, you know, those are the kinds of conditions where, you know, maybe you can miss one treatment, but there will be long-term consequences if people can't access their medical care, and we saw with Katrina when a lot of people moved relatively far away. It's difficult a lot of to Houston. It's it's difficult to transfer medical records. I mean, I think that there's going to be a lot of disruption in people's lives as they try to get to medical care. Even if you, it's great that the medical infrastructure itself seems to be largely intact. You're not dealing with people who, you know, with hospitals that have no food or have no electricity or some of the really catastrophic uh, effects we've seen during some of these other disasters. But for individual patients, I think this is going to be a very disruptive event. And
1: I think there's end providers. I mean, the, yeah. the, the providers are, affected, doctors and nurses are are, are affected too, and that's going to affect commutes and work hours and Just all sorts of things.
2: I also wonder about some of the environmental effects of of the flooding. You know, uh, one thing, there was a chemical plant that apparently exploded this morning. So there may be some environmental contamination from that. My understanding is that when you have this level of flooding, there's a lot of concern about superfund sites, other places where there may have been toxic waste that hasn't been fully cleaned up that could, you know, come up out of the ground. Landfills are getting flooded. So there may be some health effects that are related to just the kind of environmental change that comes when you introduce this much water into an environment
1: fact, that, that was our you know we usually save our extra credit stories interesting stories we read we usually do that at the end of our podcast but this seems to be the moment to introduce mine which was there was a piece by james hamlin in the atlantic about mold james is a writer and a physician we we apparently don't understand everything about mold it is not just the mold that you can see in your house immediately after the flood that you know gooky black stuff, but there's spores in the air. It's toxic. It is long-term toxic. It's not just sort of short-term. Oh, my aller- my asthma and allergies are going to be, uh, you know, bad for the next two months. There are a lot of public health issues that we do not fully understand. We're still studying the after effects of the mold in Katrina and in, in, in parts of Brooklyn, apparently that were hit after Sandy. So that's um, can affect. You know, huge, you know, 6 million people live in this area. So that's a huge issue. And then we also don't know, you know, Zika or just mosquito and insects in general. Right now, they were, dr- <laughs> they were drowned or they self-evacuated. But, you know, there's going to be a lot of standing water. Uh, I don't know exactly what the Zika mosquito breeding schedule is and when, if, you know, whether there's lesser more problem in the short run, but there's there is a, a bug problem when the water starts to go down but doesn't go down completely. And
0: apparently apparently the fire ants can swim. <laughs>
1: right, and now this was not in the Atlantic article. Did you all see the gators? You see the yes. TV yeah. footage there yeah. now. Gators in what used to be streets of Houston. Yes, we so. should say that the, the shark. The shark photo was a fake, but the alligator photos were not. I told my husband the shark photo was going to turn out to be a fake, and he didn't believe me. Oh yeah, but the shark photo was fake. The the gators were real. But I mean, that's the gators are short. Presumably short term. I mean, this mold issue may be something that we're dealing with in ways that we don't even understand how we're dealing with. For you know. Kids are particularly vulnerable. Old people are particularly vulnerable. People who are immune compromised are particularly vulnerable. And of the short-term needs, I mean, I think what Margaret just said about dialysis is a real worrisome.
2: But it does seem like good news that the medical infrastructure is better. I mean, there was some really good investigative reporting looking at the hospitals in New York after Sandy and how they had sort of been warned again and again, you know, Mm -hmm. don't have your generators on the ground floor. right? (laughs) Um, Although you know, I do think that's what happened to Ben Top. I think it was the basement that flooded. But it was had...
1: sewage, and and it was all sorts of things. It wasn't their generator. It was it was a huge amount of water and some kind of pipe or something yeah. broke, and
2: you know, and it was it also
0: was, their food it, service that went out.
2: Right, but they not got their like they got
0: delivered. Yeah, know? but
2: this this maybe gives me a little bit of hope that if, you know hospitals in areas that are potentially. Um, vulnerable to floods, you know, like they've now had a couple of rounds of warnings and hopefully they're uh, making preparations. Yeah. So the other big thing that always happens
0: in the wake of a disaster this large is that people come to... That... that, that Elected officials from those areas come to Congress and want money to help rebuild, you know, the what the infrastructure that did get damaged. So we we everybody anticipates there'll be a huge, you know, uh, a Harvey supplemental, as it will probably be called, a supplemental appropriations. This could play into what's already going to be a very
1: tricky September for healthcare, right? It'll probably get shortened down to Harve Sup, right? <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> um, let's let's resist that. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, yeah, we don't know I mean they're going to get money they're going to get a ton of money we don't they're going to get some money pretty fast and pretty bipartisan. whether it's one huge you know bill or whether it's a series of bills or I, I suspect it won't all be at once. I suspect they'll all agree on some immediate funding without a lot of wrestling over it and then they'll always find a way to fight about other things later. I mean I think you'll you'll see swift and bipartisan action to start. Sending money to Texas. Whether it gets attached, there have been some reports that it could get attached to the debt ceiling so that, oh, we got to, you know, we find a way to get that debt ceiling done um, without a partisan meltdown or whether, you know, extreme right meltdown or whatever meltdown we would have otherwise had. I don't think anyone really knows um, and there are still hard feelings from the the supplemental after Sandy that the Texas
0: conservatives didn't vote for because they said it had too much other stuff in it, uh, most of which, if you go back and look, was other des- – it, it's true. It had stuff other than immediate help for victims of Sandy. But most of the rest of what it had were things like beefing up emergency preparedness for the next storm. Hello, here's the next storm. Um, so it's, it's hard to, to know. But the question is will it take sort of needed time and oxygen out of the air that they're supposed to be spending doing – you know, working on a, a individual market stabilization or the funding bill for next year or, you know, whatever else. I that think
1: an awful lot of this gets kicked into, de- you know, as far away as December. I think there'll be a lot of short-term fixes. I think the um, supplemental funding for the Harvey area, for Texas, Louisiana, will some of it will happen pretty fast. I don't I think it's too soon. You know, Congress will come back next week. We'll have a better sense. I think there's going to be a lot of kicking the can, as we've said before. I, I, think, I don't think this will get kicked all the way to December. I mean, they're going to need money right away. All right. Well, I think we
0: can't actually do this podcast without talking at least briefly about the fate of the Affordable Care Act. Our podcast mate, Paige Cunningham, isn't here this week, but I want to highlight a story that she just wrote and that I know others are working on about all the things the Department of Health and Human Services isn't doing to undermine the law, which struck me as very odd when I looked at it. On the one hand, they keep saying it's imploding, and as we've discussed before, HHS has taken several steps to depress enrollment, including cutting this year's open enrollment period in half, canceling the Obama administration's promotion efforts. Yet apparently there are lots of things the administration could be doing to undermine the law,
2: but isn't. What's up with that? I think it's it's a couple of things. I mean, one is that I don't know that the Trump administration has fully made up its mind about what it wants to do. There was a briefing that an unnamed top um, Trump administration official gave to select reporters yesterday, and I wasn't there, but I read some of the coverage, and you know, it seemed to be a relatively high-level person who basically, you know, said we want the markets to work, but we were not going to commit to any particular specific steps. And the suggestion to, to me was like, oh, they're not really sure what they want to do, so they're sort of trying to hedge their bets by uh, letting things kind of coast along until they've decided whether they ultimately want to like save it or tank it. But I think also there if you think about the way that HHS works you know there are these people who are kind of in the trenches writing regulations doing the kind of nuts and bolts policy. Not political appointees. They're not political appointees. A lot of them have been around for a long time. A lot of them when you think about the people who are working on the exchanges these are people who were hired to start a new office just a few years ago who are probably pretty mission driven and wanting to make the thing work. And so I think there's a there's Partially like a leadership uncertainty, but I think there's also a little bit of a kind of divide between the political people and the career people. The career people are trying to keep the lights on and the political people are making political arguments. And I think until the leadership says, you know, make it fail, uh, you know, the career people are not going to just like do that voluntarily.
1: But the career people are not always in the room with the political people and there are some political people who have left excuse me, there have been some career people who have left and who have not been replaced. So and, and some political appointments are still open, I believe. So, you know, there's they began thinking the Congress was going to repeal it. So they had you know, the regulatory – remember they were talking about their three buckets a few months ago? It was the repeal bill, the regulatory piece, and then some pr- other I legislation. prongs. Prongs was my preferred language for that strategy. <laughs> they whatever. There were three
0: pieces to the strategy.
1: <laughs> three – yeah, whatevers. Um, so, they you know, one fell apart. So I think that – and the political environment for the second bucket or prong or tine or whatever we're calling it is um, – <laughs> It's in a different political environment. I mean, they could not w- repeal w- the ACA for political reasons, and those political that political landscape is an underpinning or behind what they're considering now. So I think that the they're dealing with a reality other than the reality, politically, that they expected to be at, they expected to be have repeal and then take repeal a little further, with, or maybe a lot further with regulation. I'm surprised at how slow a number of things have been. I'm surprised we don't have a clearer picture of uh, you know open enrollment is really eight or nine weeks away. We don't really know a lot of things. I'm surprised about things like you know even the birth control rule hasn't you know we keep thinking we check every day at four fifteen and it's never there. Um, I thought they would do that on January twentieth. You
0: know? I thought they would do it last Friday. Actually, <laughs> that was sort of my selected day. This, by the way, is is the rule that would that would roll back some or make it easier for uh, employers mostly who don't want to offer contraception as a as a covered benefit to do that and and other things impacting uh, birth control coverage under the Affordable Care Act. And and it's been leaked. I mean, it's been reported on since what was it? I think May. Um, And, you know, it's been sitting at OMB as regulations are wont to do, but everybody expected it to come out, you know, many weeks before this.
1: But it's still a mystery, right? We still, I don't know what they're going to do. I don't think they're going to, if they wanted to completely, dramatically blow it up, they could have done that by now. They could have, there's all sorts of things they could have done that, you know, were sort of, you know, the Harvey equivalent of, you know, really ruining things. They haven't done that. They do seem to be on a course where it's a weakening, an erosion, but not an implosion.
2: The cost-sharing reduction. So these are these subsidies that the federal government pays to health insurers to help them lower the deductibles and cost-sharing and cost sharing payments for low-income Obamacare customers. So we talk about this every week. Are they going to pay them? Aren't they? Uh, the insurers are fretting about it. I mean, I feel like...
0: Well, they talk about it every week.
2: Yeah, they talk about it every week. <laughs> we talk about it every week. But I think it's actually sort of a nice metaphor for what's going on. So you have, you know... At, periodic moments, President Trump stands up and says, you know, we're going to stop paying these. You know, this insurer bailout will not stand. You know, this is going to be the sort of big leverage that I have over this process. And yet each month they send out a check. So they sort of we sort of have the uncertainty. You have some of the downside of people not knowing. But ultimately they do have the power to remove these payments, which would insert a lot of chaos into the system. And so far they have declined to do it.
1: And none of us are sure that they still won't. Right. I mean, we still we have not seen we have not seen an implosion. We, we know they could have done any number of things to really blow things up that they haven't. But none of us are completely confident that next month they won't look different. I mean, well, we, we just don't know. That leads really nicely into a listener question that we have this week.
0: Um, it's from Emma Stokes from Baltimore, Maryland. And she asks, can you point me to or share with me in everyday language, why medical insurance premiums for those with insurance under
2: the ACA have to soar? So this is such a great and basic question. It's nice to have it and to think about it. I think there are a couple of underlying reasons. And the main one, this is the reason why all health insurance is expensive and why we're all always tearing our hair out about how much it costs to get health care. It's just the U.S. has an extremely expensive health care system. It costs a lot of money to go to the doctor. Hospitals cost a lot of money. Medications cost a lot of money. Medical devices. Everything in the U.S. system is sort of costlier on a per unit basis than the rest of the world. And so what that means is that, you know, if you need medical care, it's going to cost a lot. If you think about what health insurance is... Health insurance is sort of a way of smoothing out the cost of everyone's medical care in a community. And so if you have some people use it a lot and some people use it a little, it's sort of a way of finding an average payment that's going to cover that average person. Because health care is expensive, health insurance is expensive. But the Obamacare markets have some particular challenges too. And a big one is that it looks like the kind of people who are signing up for Obamacare insurance – tend to be sicker because they are the people who are most motivated to go out and buy health insurance when it's not super cheap. They're not getting it through their employer or Medicaid or something like that. So if you think about that average, if you have a lot more sick people, there aren't as many healthy people to balance it out, that means that your average is going to be higher.
0: And we should point out that they're not, that premiums aren't quote unquote soaring everywhere. Um, In some places, places, they're going up a lot. In some places, they're going up uh, because, as we pointed out, there's this uncertainty about whether they're going to get these payments that the government owes them. But, you know, they're, they're not it, – It it depends where you live and what insurance you have, right? Right.
1: I mean the press release from a Republican is always going to point out the highest and most – dramatic increases. But those are real. I mean, and there are parts of the country where, where premiums are going up a great deal. Most people in the Obamacare markets are subsidized, not everybody. And then some of the people who either you know, are sort of that upper end of that subsidization or just over who don't get, so someone who would get a small subsidy or who isn't getting a subsidy, it's not always affordable. And, and that's why we, one reason we still have you know, uninsured people in this country. Affordability is an issue. It's, I totally agree with everything Margot said premiums are a mirror of costs. Our premiums are high because medical costs are high, healthcare costs are high. Um, I agree with her about the risk pool. I mean, that's been sort of the problem. There's been the, the incentives for healthier and younger people were never as strong as was hoped by the people who wrote this law. There's also the politics, as we've talked about every week, and we don't have to spend a lot of time on. But people get confusing, mixed messages. They are told this is a terrible thing for them. They are not told always clearly that they can get financial aid. And they also the, the plans did not get the money that they were supposed to get because the Republicans stopped some of the payments. The congressional Republicans stopped billions of dollars of payments that were supposed to go to the health plans to help them go through these early years of risky, hard business. Um, you know, so if you were an insurance company and you were promised X billions of dollars, the, the industry, not an individual, wasn't getting billions, but the industry was getting billions and billions of dollars. They expected they didn't get it over the last couple of years. They're going to raise their premiums. So if that ever gets sorted out and all this uncertainty, the political uncertainty of what's going to happen, how supportive the government's going to be added to it this year.
2: There's also this level and flow question. So this is sort of hard to think about, but I think a lot of us tend to focus each year on like how much higher is the price this year than last year? How much is the increase? And of course that matters for people who are paying the full cost cost you know, if you've budgeted something into your life and, you know, you're not getting a 25% salary increase, all of a sudden you have a 25% increase in your health insurance premium. I don't want to minimize that or make it seem like it's trivial. It's not. That is a big hit to people's personal budgets. But I think it's also worth thinking about what is the total cost of insurance? Like, is it, A high price or a low price? And I think some of what we saw in the Obamacare markets is that when the insurers first came in in the early years, the prices were actually much lower than most experts expected. They were lower than the Congressional Budget Office expected. Uh, They were lower than the government expected. And at first, it was like a really exciting piece of good news. Everyone thought, oh, this great competitive marketplace is going to bring down prices and health insurance is going to be more affordable than ever. It turned out actually that the insurance companies were losing money at those prices, that they had priced too low, either because they thought the government was going to help them out or because they thought that it was like a good strategy for getting a lot of customers who were going to renew or because it was just a brand new market and they made a mistake. And they,
1: thought, they may have thought they would have gotten a, a better risk pool.
2: Yeah. I mean, there's lots of reasons why those numbers were wrong. But part of the reason why we've seen these increases year over year is because the insurance companies are just trying to get back in the black. They're trying to get to a price where they can actually make enough money to cover the medical costs of the people who have signed up for their plan. And some of the places that have seen big increases are places that have a lot of problems and dysfunction. But some of the places that have seen big increases are places that were just really inexpensive in the early years. And part of what we've seen over these last couple of years actually is a little bit of an equalization of prices, that places that were really cheap are kind of have crept up and places that started out really expensive had smaller increases. So it's a very complex portrait. You know, different places, there are different things. And I think it's important to look at the total price and not just the percentage increase in a given year.
1: So I think the answer, Julie, to the, the listener who who emailed you is healthcare is complicated and expensive. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes, well, that leads us perfectly into the interview that I mentioned at the top. So here it is. I'm pleased to welcome as our first guest interview at What the Health, Elizabeth Rosenthal. She's a physician, former New York Times reporter, and now she's editor in chief of Kaiser Health News. So, yes, she is my boss. But she's also (laughs) author of the widely acclaimed book, An American Sickness How Healthcare Became Big Business and How You Can Take It Back. Libby, thank you so much for doing this. Thanks, Julie, for having me on your podcast. (laughs) So, you basically puncture the myth in the book that the U.S. spends so much on healthcare because it's the best healthcare in the world. Is that a fair assessment of what you're doing? Uh, yes, I hope so. I mean,
3: we have the most expensive healthcare in the world, but all the studies show that on average, it's not better
0: than other countries. It's in fact rather lackluster. Um, so the fundamental dispute among policymakers here in Washington are those who say healthcare costs can be contained by treating health care more like a free market and those who say that that can't possibly work. I take it you have a position on one side or the other of that debate. <laughs> Well, I think we've
3: seen that a free market is not possible in healthcare. I mean, it doesn't really have any of the characteristics of a real market. I mean, you don't know the price in advance. You often don't know it ever. Um, you can't shop around very easily. Um, usually, a doctor is telling you where to go. So, uh, you know, and there's very little information about quality. So, you know, if healthcare were blueberries, you you would never eat blueberries because it's
0: so complicated to buy. So it's not like a TV. I mean, Consumer Reports tries to raid healthcare.
3: Yeah, it's totally not like a TV because if you look at flat-screen TVs, and here's the best evidence, you know, the the price of flat-screen TVs has gone down over time because the technology's better and there's more competition. In healthcare, we've seen actually the opposite. The price of an MRI just goes up and up and up. So if you need evidence that there's
0: no real market and no real competition, there it is. And But what if people had to pay money out of their own pocket for this? Wouldn't that turn things around? That's the argument.
3: Sure. You know, it's the old skin-in-the-game argument that um, if you're paying a part of your uh, healthcare costs, then you'll be a better shopper. And that kind of works to a point. But I like to say what I say in the book is what we're asking people to do now is not to have skin in the game. It's like having a kidney in the game. Because if your MRI costs $5,000 and you have a $5,000 high-deductible policy, uh, that's not just affecting, you know, where you shop, it's you're saying in the end, I'm not going to have that test even if I need it because I don't have 5000 bucks. So we do see in other countries like in Japan, there are co-payments and people have skin in the game, but in Japan an MRI may cost 150 bucks and your 10% co-payment would be $15. And so then you have a little skin in the game, but here it's it's not really
0: viable what we're asking people to do. And yet, how how did how did we let this happen? How did we get to the point where healthcare is so expensive that people can't possibly pay for their own healthcare?
3: Well, I mean, that's what my book is about. It looks at the history of how we got here. Because frankly, I was overseas for ten years, and I got back and I thought, wow, these prices are insane. You know, I I trained as a physician where I remember augmentin being a new antibiotic and costing maybe twenty dollars because it was so new and great, and then you know. 15, 20 years later, I'm back in the U.S. It's generic, and it's now $150. So how did we get here? That was the question I was trying to ask. And the answer is really that during this – period of hyperinflation in health care over the last 30 years, most people had kind of conventional insurance where you weren't paying your premium, your employer largely was. Um, you had very little in the way of co-pays and deductibles. So, of course, no one felt the prices and they just went up and up and up. So an office visit that might have been $100 in my dad's day when people were paying out of pocket went to $500. And then the business people came in and said, wow, you know, why don't we try charging a $1,000? And there's no downward pressure on that for either hospitalizations, drugs, devices, nothing until you start having these high deductible plans where people are going, wow, you know, how did it get so expensive? They're noticing the prices for the first time. But when that hyperinflation was going on, we weren't paying, so nobody paid attention. And our employers and insurers, you know – As long as they could pass on those price increases in the form of premiums and higher
0: deductibles, it really wasn't their front burner issue. So Congress has spent most of its first seven months of this year in an epic and so far unsuccessful effort to remake the Affordable Care Act. Republicans were essentially working to change who pays how much in health care. Almost never was the subject of how much were we paying. Um, How much does that frustrate you as somebody who's been watching this? Oh, it, it drives me bonkers because, of course,
3: you know, I look at these different plans and certainly I have my preferences. But the thing is, the math doesn't add up for any of them because the prices we pay are are so high. I mean, whether you look at Obamacare, the ACA, or the new Republican variants or their, their health care plans, I mean, the basic problem is the prices. You know, why did Obamacare premiums go up in some states so much higher than people expected? It's because we're paying sometimes, you know, $5,000 for that MRI rather than one hundred and fifty, dollars as in Japan, as in France, as in England, as in Canada. So, you know, the math just won't work out until we deal with the price Head-on, and no plan has done that so far.
0: Well, government seems sort of allergic to, to dealing with the price of health care. Um, how much has the government been complicit in sort of allowing this hyperinflation to happen? I mean, they were there were not they were mostly sitting on the sidelines, but there were other things that led to some of this too, weren't there?
3: Uh, sure. I mean, everyone has been complicit in being complacent, is what I like to say. You know, um, I wouldn't say they actively supported it. And certainly Medicare um, has defined prices for hospital stays and for tests quite well. And, and uh, you know, it's stuck to its guns, by and large. It hasn't done so for drug prices, and that's another issue. But in the general market, um, we have no way of regulating prices, right? We just don't. And what you see in other countries is some kind of national thinking about what's a reasonable price for this technology or this blood test or this hospitalization, and then some kind of national negotiation often. And we just don't do that. We're allergic to it, as you say. We think, oh, the market will solve this, but there's not enough real competition to solve that. So how are we going to do it? I I don't know, because healthcare is essential. It's like electricity, and we don't let electricity rates, just do whatever. You know, we we, we regulate. Um, but we are allergic to that in healthcare. And I think when people say to me, oh, you know, doctors in the medical community don't want to be told what to do. Um, well, in many countries, this is not, um, you know, a price list by fiat. The Doctors and hospitals are involved in this group negotiation about what's reasonable. Or you define a price that covers your costs and add 20%. We don't even do that. So um, I think we really need to have the physicians and hospitals not just kind of Uh, scrambling to see what they can get, but to engage in a negotiation about what's rational, because it's really nuts what goes on now. You know, an echocardiogram could cost anywhere between about $500, which is what Medicare pays. To ten thousand, which is what some hospitals ask, and you know what? Often they don't get it. Insurers negotiate them down, but every once in a while they do. And as long as once in a while they get that ten thousand, they're going to be asking for it.
0: So of course, every time somebody mentions the idea of you know doing something about health prices, that, that the industry you know screams rationing or government right. price controls or everything we can't do. If you could wave a magic wand and change the debate in Washington, what exactly would you would you suggest that they work on?
3: Ooh, Well, <laughs> there are a lot of things that one could hope for in Washington, um, I've learned as a new resident here. However, um, I think I would look first at drug pricing because both parties – Agree that drug prices are too high. The president has said we need to do something about drug prices. In Kaiser Family Foundation surveys, those come up as the number one complaint. So, okay, you know, we know there are a bunch of solutions that would bring down dr- drug prices to somewhere in the realm of what they are in the rest of the world, and we haven't moved on any of them. So let's try that. You know, we don't have to have set prices. We could do something like price corridors and then people compete below that price ceiling or within that price corridor. I mean, there are things that are kind of market-friendly, pro-business, but not kind of unfettered Wild West business, which I think this is our health. It's not like a kind of diamond ring or a fancy watch where you can say, I don't need it. I'm not going to. I'm not going to buy it because it's too expensive. You know, when you're eight months pregnant, you need to deliver. So um, we need to deal with this not as a kind of luxury
0: item. So in the meantime, what can can sort of... The average person do to prevent you know them from being victims of the, of you know healthcare price gouging, or well, is there anything they sure can do? there
3: is, and I think that's that 's part of why I wanted to write the book too, because I think people feel helpless in front of this crazy high price system you know you open the bill, the insurance statement, and it says, you know the hospital charged you one hundred thousand dollars, we negotiated it down to sixty two thousand and your copay is two thousand, so we saved you ninety eight percent you know what do you do? You just think, "Oh, good, I saved ninety-eight percent." I'm, I'm glad. You know, you're just so intimidated by how nuts the whole thing seems. So. um of course, when you're being wheeled in to have your appendix out when it's burst, you're not in a good bargaining position. But a lot of what we do in healthcare, you can at least question, you can think about, you can ask questions. And I know this works because I use it now. I mean, my antenna were really raised by writing this book. So just as a tiny example, you know, when I go into a physician and the physician says, oh, you need to get this blood test, I may ask why, I may not. But um, I do say now, okay, give me a requisition. I'm going to take it to Quest or LabCorp, a commercial lab that's in my network, because I know now that that same blood test may cost $10 at a lab in my network versus $700 if he sends it to the hospital lab. Now, I also know, and this is kind of the kind of finagling that goes on, his computer, my physician's computer, is programmed to order it from the hospital lab to order me the $700 lab test. And, hey, since I have skin in the game, I may be paying $70 of that. So, again, we can ask questions. We can look for cheaper options. Likewise, when my doctor says you need a knee x-ray, okay, fine. Which of the facilities within five blocks of your office will do this in a high-quality way, but not for too much money? Okay, my physician right now today may not know that, but if every patient starts asking that... He or she will. And more than that, I want my physician to say to the guy who's charging, you know, $1,000 for the knee x-ray, I'm not going to refer patients to you anymore because you're ripping off my patients and I don't like that. So I think we have power. We have to choose to use it. It will save you money in the short term. But more than that, it will send a genuine consumer signal to this out-of-control industry that we're not going to be complacent anymore and you can't do whatever you want. You know, we're going to be looking and uh, to our representatives that we're going to be voting if you don't take action on things like drug price. Good. Helpful advice.
0: Elizabeth Rosenthal, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Okay, we will have more interviews in the coming weeks. Let's wrap things up today with a segment we call Extra Credit. That's where each of us recommends a story they read recently that they think everyone else should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these pieces on the Kaiser Health News site, khn.org. We've already heard from Joanne about what her extra credit is. Margot, what is your extra credit?
2: So I wanted to talk about a story uh, from The New York Times. My colleague Gina Colada wrote a story called With a Simple DNA Test History. Family histories are rewritten. And so this is a story about these kind of personal DNA tests where you, like, swab your cheek and you mail the swab out to a company and they give you back information about yourself. And a lot of these tests and this technology, I think, were developed with the idea that they would be really helpful for people in their health. Decision making. And that's part of why Gina is writing about this. She's a health reporter. So, you know, there were some startups that were basically saying, send us your DNA and we'll tell you if you're at risk of cancer or Alzheimer's or other kinds of things. That has not panned out so well. There are some very expensive medical tests that are focused on very particular genes that, you know, you can get that test and a genetic counselor can talk to you about it. And, you know, those tests have been quite helpful. But in general, this idea that you're going to, like, send your whole uh, DNA out to a company and they're going to tell you about what your health profile is across the board. That has not panned out for reasons both regulatory and scientific. But uh, genealogy companies have started using this technology. And it turns out that actually, if, you know, lots of people send away their DNA, you start to be able to figure out where people come from and what their family lineage is. And this story looked at uh, some particular stories of people where it turned out, you know, their father who wasn't who they thought their father was, but also more broadly looking at groups, racial groups in the United States, where it turns out that A lot of people who describe themselves as white have, you know, substantial percentage of their DNA is from people of African origin, and substantial numbers of people who identify as black actually have white DNA, or European DNA. And so I just thought it was like really kind of – it was an interesting and rich story about how – uh, first of all, we like don't necessarily know what our identity is because people's family members, you know, are always full of of mysteries. But also, how this technology that was developed for one purpose is being used in another one, and I think is, uh, you know, people are finding long lost relatives uh, through this process. Do we,
0: do we know how? Ac- I haven't read the story, and I
2: intend to. But do, do we know how accurate these things are? So, accompanying the story was a. Um, Sort of review from our sister site, the Wirecutter, that does like consumer product reviews, and so they recommended like which one to buy and things like that. I think that they are not super accurate in terms of saying like you're from Germany versus you're from France because you know European people moved around and mixed their DNA throughout history, and some of these country samples are based on a relatively small number of people in those countries as kind of the basis for the sample. But I think in terms of regional, uh, you know is this African DNA? Is this European DNA? Uh, Is this Asian DNA? They're pretty good. And for certain communities where there are a lot of really specific DNA markers, so Ashkenazi Jews is a good example of this, they actually are quite accurate because there are enough markers for that group that you can say with certainty, like, okay, this DNA comes from an Ashkenazi Jewish family.
0: That will be interesting going forward. Uh, finally, here's my extra credit. It's from The Washington Post. It's called Some Say People on Disability Just Need to Get Back to Work. It's Not That Easy by Terrence McCoy. Uh, this is a, a one piece in a series The Post has been doing on federal disability programs and how hard it is for people both to get on and to get off the those programs. This particular story is about a woman who got divorced, fell on hard times, has a variety of health problems, and is trying to hold down a cashier's job at Walmart, uh, which turns out to be harder than you think. It's very thought-provoking. Um, so that is it for today. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcast. We'd also appreciate it if you left a review. If you have comments or questions, you can email us at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org, or you can tweet me I'm at Jay Ravner.
2: I'm at Sanger Katz.
0: And I'm at Joanne Cannon. We'll be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy.